is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Another school shooting in the U.S. This time, Nashville, Tennessee. The shooter, a woman. Very unusual. We'll go in-depth. Autism rates are on the rise in the U.S. We'll look into why. And Israel is in chaos right now. We look into whether Benjamin Netanyahu's government is in trouble. Since the start of this year, uh, Rob, uh, according to their different ways of computing the uh, figures, but at least by one measure, this is now the shooting today in Nashville, the 13th mass shooting in the United States since the beginning of this year alone with almost 70 people having already lost their lives to shooters. This particular episode, uh, they're all horrific, but this one particularly so, because it involves small elementary age school children. Uh, The setting this time was a private uh, Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. According to the police there, uh, a woman, and we're going to talk a lot more about that on this show because that, as you know, Rob, is a very unusual thing. But a 28-year-old is what they believe her age is, a woman, came into the school armed with at least two uh, assault-style rifles and a handgun, at least that, and then apparently opened fire for no reason that anyone knows And we may never know because she was killed by the police, but unfortunately, not until she took the lives of three of the young school kids and three adults. And we have also uh, been told that she was a former student at the school, which is going to lead to a lot more speculation if that is one of the factors that led her to commit this act or if it is unrelated to her uh, committing this act. Maybe she chose the school because she knew it. Or maybe there was some reason she felt driven to do it, or whether this was a mental health issue that drove her to uh, commit this shooting. And and what's interesting, too, if it turns out that that is all uh, the case, and the police will eventually verify all of that, uh, because of her age, and again, initially they thought she was a teenager, now they're saying she's 28, so if it has something to do with her connection to the school, uh, you know, we're talking about an elementary school, these are very young kids, which would mean... If she was a student there, it was quite some time ago, unless maybe she was a staff member. But we don't know is the main point. We have uh, with us now Lori Post. She's with the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and researches mass shootings. Uh, Charles quoted some figures. I have seen some slightly different figures, but it might be due to the fact that uh, there are different ways of calculating what is and what is not a mass shooting. According to one definition, it's uh, where four or more are uh, are shot, not counting the shooter. And uh, in that case, I believe we're up over 100 uh, of those types of shootings this year. Uh, Are we really seeing more mass shootings? Are they really just going up and up over the last few years? Or is this a matter of it feels like it is because they get reported more now? We're more aware of them answer that. It's not a simple answer. So yes, this year, 2023 has shown a record number of mass shootings. um, And you are correct that there are different ways of measuring it. So today we would call or label this type of a mass shooting as a public mass shooting where four or more people, not including the perpetrator, were killed. But the figures are, are, and and it would be interesting to sort of nail down how the different figures are arrived at, because 
Uh, I had Alex. mentioned at the at the beginning of the show, the Washington Post was saying 13 mass shootings in the U.S. Yeah. since the beginning of the year. Rob has that 100 figure. That's quite a difference. But, yeah, I can explain exactly that. So there have been exactly um, three public mass shootings where four more people were killed in a public space using a gun. Um, then there's the, um, it's actually, um, there was, there's the Northeastern um, database where they counted 13 as of yesterday, which we would increase that to 14 as of today, um, where that's where four more people died, a total of 75 people killed since January 1. And then there's also, um, there's also another um, database that um, the Mother Jones database where they use three or more people killed. But the one that you're talking about with hundreds is a problem because that one they include where three or more people are shot but not killed. And so what that does is it conflates different types of crimes with mass shootings. Got it. And what do you make uh, in this case where the shooter is identified as a woman? Uh, that is not something we hear of very often. By and large, oh. uh, mass shooters uh, shooters are, are young uh, males. Uh, so you know, I, I, I hate to look at trends, but now we're seeing the beginning. Are we seeing the beginning of another trend where where mass shooters are equal opportunity shooters? Um, this today is really unusual. I agree with you on that one. And uh, but let me tell you why. So this person um, also uh, let me address your other issue about um, about mental health. This person, by de definition, cannot have a mental health condition or even a substance abuse problem that would uh, because. She had to plan this out. She had to plan those weapons, the ammunition, the place, how to kill that many people. And she killed everybody she shot. So she was on, she had, this was a, used a lot of forethought. People with mental health conditions can't be that, are not that organized. So. Um, well, wait a minute, I'm going to stop. Wait a minute, I'm gonna, I am going to stop you on that one. I, <laughs> I, I, because I'm curious what the evidence is for that. I, I mean, it strikes me as odd that, that, that somebody just because somebody has and i think this is what you're saying just because yeah. somebody has some sort of mental uh, health issue therefore they cannot go into uh, the the foresaw forethought necessary to do a mass killing i think some people might think quite the opposite yeah no i understand that and people think that because they're good people and they can't understand why somebody would go and shoot a bunch of innocent children or innocent you know bystanders however um about 50 percent of americans Report having a mental health condition like depression, which we would say is like a mood disorder, right? That doesn't mean that they go out and shoot and kill people. No, no, of course people, not. But, but, but I mean, but it, I thought what you were saying before was that having mental health issues precludes one from being able to plan and then carry out a mass shooting. Let, let me qualify that one when, you know, somebody who's delusional. So somebody who's delusional could never organize it. Somebody with schizophrenia it, could yeah. never organize it. So go there. And there's always a mental health component to it. But I'm just saying that most people with mental health issues, and that's like half of American population, are not out shooting people. But this one here is unique. And um, and why it's so unique is that we've had three women since um, um that I count in since 1982 who've committed a mass shooting, but the other two are qualitatively very different. Only four people died, four and six people died, and they were in the commission of another crime. Whereas this person here had a full assault weapons Rambo fantasy of going guns a blazing. And then the other thing, um, she also, she's consistent with males in that she was shot we would say this is suicide by cop. She went in shooting suicide by cop, 
where she died, that part isn't different from men, but just the fact that she's a woman having a Rambo fantasy and, you know, got the part with all the, the guns planned, the place, the ammunition, the weapons, that takes a lot of organization, fantasizing, forethought. Rob raised the issue in their last segment about uh, might we be seeing the start of a trend since, as we've been exploring, uh, having a woman as a mass shooter and this sort of thing is incredibly unusual. And I guess you don't know if a trend is beginning until you start seeing the trend develop. Yeah. But but are there are there indications in your mind that might lead you to think that perhaps we are going down that very troubling road? No. I mean, I don't see, I'm not saying that it can't happen, but, you know, today would be the first of a trend. I mean, a woman dressing up in, with a semi-automatic or the assault rifles and the, that type of weapons, that's, that's a first. And then, and then I was starting to say before in the last segment, there have been five women involved in mass shootings since like 1966. And two of those were the woman was brought to the mass shooting by her husband. So not, they're not like solo acts, only three solo female mass shooters that I know of, one in 1960, or one in 2014, and one in 2006. All right, Lori, uh, this is awfully difficult for people who work in our line of, of, of uh, business, uh, what Charles and I do, news journalists, because every time there's a mass shooting, so much of the coverage covers the same thing over and over again. We get the over same experts, and they say the same things, because there's nothing different to say. I'm not faulting the experts. I'm saying that there is only so many ways you can say the same thing, and there's nothing to add to this. The only thing different here is the fact that we have a, a female shooter uh, rather than the typical uh, younger male carrying out these mass shooting events. But as you study mass shootings, and as the experts say the same things over and over, you we hear from one side that, well, it's our permissive society. The doors were unlocked. There's not enough security in schools. We need more guns on the street so that more people can can shoot the shooters. And then from the other side, we need more gun control, even though gun control is not going to stop every mass shooting. I think we all acknowledge that. But I think the hope is that maybe stronger limits would limit the number of people who are killed in mass shootings, limit the number of incidents of mass shootings uh, that we have, and maybe keeping guns out of the hands of people who are not stable or have a problem with uh, anger or have other mental health issues. Where does the fault lie in this? Is it when you look at other Western nations that have mental health issues as we have in this country, uh, they don't have the same number of mass shootings that we do. And the difference would appear to be obvious is that they don't have the gun problem that we do. We have guns on the streets, so I don't think we can take the guns away. Is there anything new to be said about this, about the issue of guns in the streets and how easy it is to get them? So you've covered a lot of topics there, but let's just say this one. There are mass shootings in other countries and several other countries around the world. The only difference but, is... But, but not to this extent. It, no, it's unacceptable, and they removed the gun. So, for example, in 1996, there was a mass shooting in Australia, and they um, took away all assault rifles and all rifles. And in New Zealand, there was a mass shooting, and they decided that it was unacceptable, and they got rid of all guns. And it's happened in Northern Europe, and again, it resulted in a gun ban. So we saw in the United States between 1994 and 2004, there was an, a ban on assault rifles, and that alone... Um, decrease the number of mass shootings. And had we kept that law in place, it looks like that we would have had 30 to 40 fewer mass shootings um, since 2004. Yeah. 
Well, but, but of course, there are people who point out California, which has some of the strictest gun controls in the in the nation. <clears throat> and yet we've had, a, as you know, a, a rash of mass shootings in recent times. And, and those strict controls, you could perhaps argue that maybe there would have been more without them, but it's hard to prove a negative. So uh, all we have to go in is what the facts are. And, and people who are opposed to gun control will point to California and say, you see, it doesn't really work having those controls, which leads me actually to this question, because there are countries in Europe, uh, you know, Rob is, is correct. There are other countries that have guns. Not all of them have taken all guns away. Some of them have gotten rid of handguns, but you can still, you know, plenty of farmers that have guns and, and sure. hunters that have rifles and they, they still have them. So my question is a, is a different one. Is there something fundamentally wrong with American society, with American culture, that given the opportunity and the granted the the access to a whole bunch of weapons makes Americans more prone to be shooters, mass shooters. Is there something wrong with us is what I'm asking? Well, I mean, but here's the thing that mass shootings accounts for less than one percent of gun deaths. Right. So increasing arming the population results mostly in more suicides or mostly accidental shootings like by children or individuals shooting at themselves or shooting at friends. So there's um, there, the only thing that's different about America is we have assault weapons and large capacity magazines. We don't need those. There's absolutely no need for that on a farm. There's absolutely no need for that to protect ourselves. Um there's just no need for it. And it it, it, leads, it feeds that Rambo fantasy that people have or many mass shooters about having a military style type of uh, assassination and killing lots of people. And it also allows them to kill a lot of people in just a few minutes. All right, Lori, thank you so much. We want to hold on uh, just for a minute. We want to bring in uh, Ken Trump very quickly here as school security and safety expert. Uh, Mr. Uh, 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 Trump, thank you for joining us today. Um, so in this issue, we are hearing that a side door was was the shooter gained interest through side door. I don't know if they specified if that door was supposed to have locked and it wasn't or if it was open or if she got it open somehow. Um, but uh, is that an issue that's really going to stop school shootings and uh, or limit uh, the number of them? Uh, what's your take on this? It's one piece of a, a bigger puzzle. I mean, I've been in this field for more than 30 years in the assessing security and emergency planning in schools across the country. And one of the most common complaints we have, even from the administrators who oversee those schools and hire us, is that people prop open doors. Doors are left uh, unlocked. So a door is, you know, something it could at least, if locked, delay or make a little bit more difficult and give people that additional time to get in. So the question is going to be, was it a locked door that was forced open somehow? Was it a door that was not locked? Was it something somebody had propped open? Was open door part of the culture? Did they come in this case through some type of connection to the building? We know that from a lot of our uh, schools that are attached to churches and places of worship, that school buildings, the educational piece, are actually physically connected to the church. And that's hard when you have a church that's being used all day. You need to put some, some pieces to that. But, you know, the first and best line of defense is, always uh, a, a well-trained, highly alert staff right. uh, and, and student body on these things. 
but we've got to do some some different type of training on uh, dealing with the unknown unknowns, training school staff to uh, look at abnormalities and patterns. What type of threat assessment issues do we have here? Was there any indicator? Maybe not. That's why we call them the unknown unknowns right. that we're seeing more of. Uh, and how do you make cognitive decisions under stress when these things unfold in minutes? Okay, thank you, Ken. Gloria, I want to go back to you uh, in our closing uh, time here. Uh, I want to go back again to the unusual nature of the shooter being female and, and ask the reverse of the question we've been asking. Why aren't more women involved in mass shootings? They have the same access to guns as their male counterparts do in this country. Presumably, they have some of the same axes to grind as men do in this country, whether it's uh, uh, employment, uh, you know, they were fired or they hate a particular group. There's no difference in that between men and women. Why aren't there more? Probably women don't need to feel masculine by killing other people. And sometimes it's men want to exert masculinity and they do it by, by shooting and killing other people. They do it because they can. And so there are not, they're not female serial killers or, you know, it's a rare event for that too. It's just a male thing. All right. Uh, Lori Post, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, she's with the uh, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and uh, researches mass shootings, of course, sadly. Another one to research today. Also, Ken Trump uh, was on with us, a school security and safety expert. Uh, right now, though, the CDC has found the rate of kids in the U.S. diagnosed with autism is going up. Latest numbers from 2020 show one in 36 diagnosed with autism by the time they were eight years old. Dr. Matthew uh, Maynard is an epidemiologist who leads the CDC's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network. Thank you so much for joining us. So what's behind this uh, rise? Uh, is it and and as we always ask when we come to these statistical stories, is this really a rise or is this we are diagnosing this condition better? Yeah, it's a it's a common question. And uh, the the evidence that we have really suggests that it, it's increases in awareness and identification. And it's been a it's been a shift over time. Um, there's a lot more children being evaluated and, and identified at younger ages now. Uh, screening is also now a part of routine practice for for pediatricians, and um, there's there's a lot more services and supports available to people. So to be as clear as we can on this, uh, there's no evidence, am I correct, that uh, there's been any sort of dramatic increase in the number of children who are uh, who do have autism as opposed to that that that's pretty much a constant in the population is that it it's just that we're discovering it now yeah i mean that's that's largely how we interpret that there really isn't good evidence that there's anything else that's making a contribution to like a you know i, I guess what you would call like a real increase like there's actually more of these people there seems to just be more identification and uh, tell us about treatments how how are these kids helped well, they're helped by being identified early and being referred into services and supports. And of course, autism is a spectrum that includes a wide range of uh, abilities and strengths and difficulties. And so uh, CDC actually has a program uh, called Learn the Signs, Act Early that provides free information and materials to parents and healthcare providers 
Uh, it, it includes a, a app for your, your phone um, that allows you to track and also celebrate your, your children's milestones starting as young as two months of age. And they also, it's, I think it's available in English and Spanish. Other materials are in other languages too. And there is information, if you are concerned, uh, how to bring up those concerns to your doctor or healthcare provider. Can you give an example, perhaps, or two of uh, something in a child's behavior that, say, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, might not have been classified as as being uh, as that child being on the spectrum, uh, as and now it would be. Well, I mean, I think it's it may. I, I guess I would say maybe it isn't being, or maybe it hadn't been detected as often. I think, and this isn't based on data in the reports because we don't measure exactly how often like specific things are noticed. But I think a good example is just you know, hearing of all of the people that are being uh, diagnosed as having autism in adulthood and, uh, you know, people that are, you know, very successful in some areas of life, uh, that have education, families, um, but have those same, you know, social difficulties that are, are you know, best captured by a term like autism. And um, there was actually an accompanying commentary that came out with our reports that was published in Stat News that uh, highlights this. Uh, very quickly, I, not this a quick question to answer, but uh, for those of us who don't truly understand what autism is and how you know someone has autism, uh, what does it look like? Well, it can look like very different things in different people. I can tell you very quickly that the the way it's described as a, a medical diagnosis is that it's a it's it's considered a developmental disability. Although some people would say it's a it's a difference. Uh, it's characterized by impairments in social communication, uh, which would include things like your ability to maintain a conversation, uh, use language appropriately, nonverbal uh, gestures that are a part of communication, uh, and also characterized by uh, repetitive behaviors or restricted interests. And again, that can range from things like being really extremely interested, you know, to the exclusion of other things to where it could cause challenges in like a very particular topic. It could also be things like motor stereotypies, like, uh, like hand or finger flapping. Mm. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Matthew Maynard with the CDC's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Is Israel's government falling apart? Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has announced a delay in his judicial overhaul plan after a week in a mass protest. This comes as Netanyahu is aligning with ultra-conservatives in his government. With us now is Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a former State Department Middle East analyst. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure. So uh, can you briefly explain to our listeners why this is happening now in Israel, which we in the U.S. always considered the most stable country in the Middle East, certainly the only democracy in the Middle East? Why is this happening? Well, democracies are democracies are imperfect, aren't they? Uh, I mean, look at our own democratic backsliding. I think it's happening because you have a government uh, headed by Benjamin Netanyahu 
after five elections, who finally gained a majority in the Knesset, 64 seats out of 120. This government is composed of fundamentalist extremists. Prime Minister actually is probably the most moderate uh, individual in the entire government, which speaks volumes about how just how extreme the government is. Government is committed to two things. One, annexation of the West Bank in everything but name. And number two, creating a situation where there is a dramatic revision in the nature of the Israeli democratic system. Unlike our system, we have three branches of government, a written constitution, um, and a very strong judiciary. Israel has two branches of government, a judiciary and an executive, the prime minister, and a legislature, the parliament, the Knesset. But they essentially act as one because the prime minister puts together a coalition of uh, government, 60, 60 plus one, and can pass laws. The effort of this judicial reform, and I think it's more, more along the lines of judici judicial coup, is to essentially emasculate, neuter, uh, and make it impossible for the judiciary to intervene um, and overturn legislation passed by the Knesset. And it is the only check and balance. Unlike here, when you have a legislator, which can be divided, two houses, Israel only has one house. Um, you have a Supreme Court and you have a written constitution. Israel doesn't have any of those things. So this was perceived by large numbers of Israelis, according to the polls, a majority of the country, as a fundamental threat to the image of Israel as a democratic, pluralistic, humanistic. Let's step, put aside for a moment the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. And that's why you've seen the most extraordinary demonstrations and unprecedented in the history of this state um, in composition, in duration, in intensity, and they succeeded. They forced a pause, not a cancellation of the legislation, a pause. I think they, frankly, they passed uh, a very important stress test for Israel's own democratic practice. Uh, a lot of people have speculated that, uh, yes, uh, that his party is trying to do things because they don't want any oversight. They want to be able to force through what they want to do without anybody being able to call them on it. But other people are speculating it's because Netanyahu, who has been under many investigations, several of investigations, wants to ensure that that uh, he essentially can make himself untouchable because he'll have the lawmaking power behind him and the judiciary won't be able to do anything about it. Guys, it's not speculation. The reason you had five five elections in four years, extraordinary record for a democratic polity, is because Netanyahu refused to participate in any government in which he didn't have a majority. And the fact is he's on trial now and has been on trial for three years in a Jerusalem district court, three judges, for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. And the fact is judicial override or selecting the judges, which is even more important than the override, if you select the judges, you don't need the override, presumably. Um, he sought, or he seeks through that, to immunize himself, delay, undermine the case against him. Um, so there's no question that there's a personal element here. And for him, it's become existential. You can understand why. If if the trial goes to term, he, he may be convicted and then would either have to serve time, which is... Uh, hard for me to imagine, or cut some plea deal, which would probably involve him leaving public office. So this is this is risk-ready, desperate 
Benjamin Netanyahu. And it was only in the face of these extraordinary protests where credit agencies were, were talking about downgrading Israel's credit status, where startup entre, uh, entrepreneurs in Israel feared that the startup yeah, but, nation uh, right, but let, but let me, shut them. Because we're running out of time. So let me ask you one, yeah. one, one last quick uh, question. Then. Well, the question is quick. The answer may not be. Uh, you said that they kind of passed a litmus test because these protests did manage to have Netanyahu put on pause his efforts to to uh, uh, redo the uh, judiciary. But that is just a pause. Uh, in the meantime, the very right wing in that country, as you know, is busy trying to make sure that this does go through. So what do you think will happen next? I think basically if he tries it again in several months, and they may, that you're going to get even a greater reaction. You, you've had some of the top, the head of Mossad, head of Shin Bet, head of the Israeli military who resigned, chief of, of the chief of staff of the Israeli military, all go to him and say this judicial reform effort is jeopardizing national security. He is Mr. Security. He can't afford to walk around and have that label undermined. So I, I have a feeling judicial reform, as we know it, uh, game over. There are other aspects of, of Israel's democratic practice, and of course, its relationship with the Palestinians that are, are going to become, I think, very mm -hmm. contentious in the weeks ahead. But for now, I think I think the Israeli public uh, did an extraordinary job. All right. Uh, Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, former State Department Middle East analyst. The uh, protests and unstable situation in Israel has the U.S. calling for a compromise there between hardliners and others. And, of course, this would uh, create tension between the U.S. and Netanyahu's government. Stephen Spiegel is director of the UCLA's Center for Middle East Development. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. So is the issue here part of this meta thing that we're seeing? Uh, it, it's the creeping rise, some say, of authoritarianism infecting even in Israel. Of course, you know, Netanyahu has been around for a while. He's not a newcomer to the scene. And that is creating uh, kind of this uh, ideological rift between uh, the United States, which uh, ostensibly supports democracy and not authoritarianism, and other countries that are leaning that way. Well, that, that's true. I, I think that uh, the Biden administration has handled it very well in terms of talking quietly behind the scenes and uh, at the same time uh, keeping quieter uh, publicly. This is not good. It is really uh, the only country that's really democratic in the region. And uh, it, the, what is going on uh, is very uh, uh, dangerous. So, uh, yes, I think we see a situation in which um, there is a potential uh, controversy, a lot of it, between the, uh, the U.S. and Israel, but both countries really need each other, have a, a, a long uh, series of involvement together, and I don't think that's the, the key problem in fact, I think the United States is, if anything, making it better, reminding uh, the Israelis about the importance of dem uh, democracy. Although a lot of other, uh, a lot of Israelis have uh, shown that themselves. Of course, the 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 other huge problem is the U.S. problem among uh, American Jews. Uh, you know, there this has caused 
quite a a rift uh, among them. Uh, There already had been one because of the Palestinian situation, because of the West Bank. Uh, Now this move, even though it's been put on pause, as we've mentioned before, this move by Benjamin Netanyahu to, uh, in effect, do our last guest, I think, refer to it as a judicial coup, uh, it is causing quite a disturbance in the Jewish-American community. How does that get resolved? I think it gets resolved if the Israeli situation gets resolved. Uh, obviously, many, um, uh, most Israeli, uh, American Jews are very uh, uh, upset and concerned about this. Uh, majority uh, in America, not all by any means, but the majority it, it tends to not be uh, taken with uh, 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 with uh, Netanyahu, uh, and therefore Netanyahu's attempt right now uh, does create serious problems uh, for American Jews. But first of all, we don't know what's really going to happen. Second of all, uh, most American Jews really ultimately uh, want Israel to to be uh, accepted, acceptable, effective, a good democracy, and safe. Uh, and if you begin to get into all this, uh, I think uh, uh, Netanyahu himself is beginning to see that all of these are in danger. One other point, and I think it's important for Americans to remember. Don't let anyone run for your leader if he or she has problems uh, in terms of uh, uh, justice. And if you've made a mistake or appear to be a mistake or have been, uh, uh, if there's a question, then it should be trying to be uh, solved before uh, uh, you start running for office. You see this very much. Uh, with uh, uh, with Netanyahu has very serious problems, and that is affecting him, I think. And you do see it at home uh, 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 with a possible with the past president. So I think this for democracy of the future, this has to be a lesson. Uh, and I, I just wish they would have solved that uh, before uh, uh, Netanyahu went into office. Well, our last guests uh, seem to be leaning toward the fact that uh, the citizens they're protesting have kind of put a stop to this and that that if Netanyahu tries to uh, hold off and uh, try this again down the road, he's going to run into even more protests. Let's say that that does not happen. Let's say that he manages to to accomplish his goal of uh, making sure that there is no oversight of him or his government. Uh, what can the United States do, or is that a tightrope that is simply too thin for us to walk on? Because we do not want to alienate that ally there in a very dangerous part of the uh, world. Uh, how can we affect change or press for change without going too far? The Israelis themselves are doing some of this for us, in a sense. I mean, when you start to have soldiers or people are more importantly because there's a larger number uh, people who uh, are not working in, in the military today but go go to work to help uh, once a week once a month whatever they really made it impossible for uh, Netanyahu to go on and I think that uh, the United States can be very significant by continuing uh, both privately and it will have to increase publicly 
to indicate that we uh, that this is not the way to uh, to pursue these kinds of things. But if you compare it to other countries that are going in this in the direction of uh, of trying to create a new kind of government against democracy, uh, the Israeli people have been pretty strong, and uh, I think that's what we have uh, uh, to depend on and to uh, understand. Israel cannot become a country uh, uh, which is not democratic. It's not the way it was set up. It's not the way the majority of its people are. And uh, it cannot afford to because of the many dangers uh, around it. It cannot solve this way the Palestinian issue, certainly. It cannot solve the Iranian issue. It cannot solve the uh, political and, uh, uh, and issues and financial issues. Israel can't afford it, and I think we've seen the last few days that the Israeli people won't allow it. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen uh, Spiegel, director of UCLA's Center for Middle East Development. That's going to do it for In-Depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.